Hello, this is Dara Whelan and I am the Irish Independence 1916 Project Coordinator. As part of our commemoration coverage, we're bringing you a 10-part podcast series that's looking at the history of the Easter Rising in 10 objects. It's based on the book A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects by well-known historian John Gibney, who's already written the biography of Sean Houston for the acclaimed 16 Live series. And he's currently the Glasnevin Trust Assistant Professor at Trinity College Dublin. John, for this next podcast, uh, we're looking at the Mosin Nagant rifle from the Oud. Um, it's a story about, I suppose, the rifles that were supposed to come to Ireland. And maybe you might be able to kind of fill us in and maybe what would have actually happened if they had arrived and uh, give us some of the context and background to it. Well, um, one thing you have to bear in mind about the East Horizon that we're commemorating and studying and learning about and talking about is that there's a good case for saying that it wasn't the East Horizon that was meant to happen, that it was a plan B, that there was to be a rising in Dublin, undoubtedly as a kind of PR exercise, because there's no real point having a rebellion unless people are going to be made aware of it. That went ahead. But there do seem to be plans for a much bigger, um, more substantial, though not necessarily particularly well-planned rebellion across the Western Seaboard, counties Kerry, Clare, Limerick to a certain extent, Galway, possibly even Mayo and Sligo. Now, the only thing that happened in that part of the world was a gathering of of poorly armed volunteers uh, in East Galway under Liam Mellows, which didn't really last for too long. But the key to that is the fact that they were poorly armed, because the Easter Rising was poorly armed. And the rifle that we're talking about is a large, long Russian service rifle. And there does seem to be a plan in the years and months prior to the Rising that the Rising would... Well, you would carry out a rise and had a chance of success. You know, blood sacrifice came later. Like, we can't get too hung up on that. A lot of these people thought about actually succeeding. And that begs the question, well, firstly, before you can think about succeeding, uh, well, you need before you can even think about what you're going to do, you kind of need something to do it with. And that meant that in the Ireland of 1914, 15, 16, where guns are kind of hard to come by unless you're really a member of the UVF, but they weren't really going to lend their rifles to the Irish volunteers. Um, those militants who wanted to carry out a rebellion, and bear in mind, as soon as the First World War broke out, people like Sean McDermott... I mean, Sean McDermott um, was walking through Dublin when he heard news of the, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and, you know, immediately told, you know, um, Gerard O'Sullivan, who later came to prominence um, as a colleague of Michael Collins, McDermott immediately told O'Sullivan, this is our chance. He predicted what was going to happen, said, the, the alliances across Europe are going to come into play, there's going to be a war, and we'll have an opportunity for a rebellion. And as early as September 1914, there was a meeting of advanced nationalists, militant nationalists, in uh, Parnell Square, or Rutland Square, to give its original aim, where they basically agreed that before the end of the war, there was going to be a rising against British rule in Ireland. Now, if you came to that decision, then you had to think about planning a rebellion, and you also had to think about getting the tools of your trade, and that's where the rifles come in. Because one of the one of the lines in the Easter Proclamation that that uh, the volunteers and the, the leaders of the IRB are generally castigated for is lying about gallant allies in Europe, which can only really mean one thing. It meant Imperial Germany, who were the gallant allies of nobody. But that's not the point. It's not a question of whether Germany was a, was a good country or a bad country. They were the enemies of Britain. They were at war with Britain. And if you were interested in fighting against the British, who else were you going to go to? They were also nearby, you know. So in late 1914, attempts began to be made to forge some kind of link with Germany. Originally through New York, through um, people such as the veteran Fenian, uh, John Devoy, and in particular involving the former British consul, Roger Casement, who went to Germany in late 1914 with the explicit purpose of trying to get German assistance for a rebellion in Ireland. Now, that was to take three forms. One was to be an open commitment um, by the Germans to recognise Irish independence. Okay, whatever, that was you know easy to provide, cost the Germans nothing. Casement also hoped that he might recruit a so-called Irish brigade, 
um, a kind of force from Irish prisoners in German custody. Now, these would have been Irishmen fighting the British army whom the, whom the Germans would have captured. And the hope was that, or Caseman's hope, was that you could recruit these men into fighting for Irish independence. Now, the catch is, when he went around um, various prison camps putting this proposition forward, it didn't really meet with a warm reception, um, to put it mildly. I mean... Um, Funny, that. Yeah, you know, like he... Um, even aside from the fact that he was wearing a white suit like the man from Del Monte um, on at least one occasion, he was going into places and basically asking uh, asking men to basically to desert their army or to desert the army they have been a part of. And bear in mind, a lot of nationalists had joined up. I mean, there was a long tradition of, British, of Irish people fighting the British army. There was a very, very strong sense that Germany was the enemy. So it wasn't as clear-cut as people might think. I mean, it wasn't unusual for a nationalist to think, right, the British are our enemy, but the Germans are a much worse enemy, which is why we're fighting in British colours. It's not that much of a contradiction. And at least one occasion, Casement was basically, uh, had, to be sa- has to be, had to be escorted to safety after a crowd of Irish prisoners turned hostile. Now, by not recruiting these, um, these men, this kind of... Force, this led the Germans to conclude that well we're being we're being led up the garden path here by this guy Casement and his colleagues, because they were promising the Germans that if the Germans landed in Ireland, there'd be the country was trembling on the brink of open revolt. That these Irish men in uh, German custody were just they couldn't wait to get back to Ireland to have a crack at the Brits. The reality was very very different. So the Germans and the Germans were only interested in backing an Irish rising because it was suited them. But they began to conclude that well there was no Irish rising in the back. And so they slowly but surely began to wash their hands off this endeavour. There had been notion that perhaps the Germans would invade Ireland, they would supply a large number of weapons, um, that they would back this rebellion up to the hilt, but the Germans weren't inclined to back something that they weren't sure stood any prospect of success. And as well as that, from a German point of view, if you were going to send 20,000 troops to Ireland, which is what people like Casement were suggesting, the Germans would have to get, the past, get past the Royal Navy. So it's not something that uh, is, it would put it this way: the idea of supporting the Irish rebellion is something that could have proved very costly to the Germans, and they backed off it. Two points on that: um, how much of it was that Caseman was a bit of a Walter Mitty type figure that uh, it couldn't have been, they trusted the wrong person to try and make this happen? Secondly, how much of it was that both sides was leading the other up the garden path? I think there's an element of truth in all of that. I think that uh, I mean Caseman. Caseman was often described as a headstrong man, that his judgment wasn't the best, and certainly by early 1916, people like John Devoy, who were trying to communicate with the Germans, were leaving Caseman out of the loop. Like the irony is, Roger Caseman was probably, you know, while he's one of the most famous leaders of the Rising, he's one of the ones who was least connected to it. He was arrested before the Rising broke out. He had been very much sidelined um, in the years and months running up to the Rising when he had remained in Germany. Now, this brings us back to the rifle, which is what we're discussing, you know. Um, and the idea was that uh, the Germans had agreed to send over a shipment of 20,000 rifles, 10 machine guns and about 5 million rounds of ammunition on a captured British merchant st- steamer that they had disguised as Norwegian vessel and renamed the Yard. Now, as far as Cason was concerned, this was a wordless gesture. And he said himself that it was purely to get rid of us on the cheapest possible terms to themselves, that the Germans had decided that, well, this Irish venture was going nowhere, but you know what, we'll give them something. And even those rifles weren't even the Germans, they'd captured them from the Russians. Well, this is it, it cost them nothing. The, 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 and this brings to the, the point about the rifles. They weren't German. They weren't top-class German engineering. Um, they'd been captured by the front, they had been captured from the Russians on the Eastern Front, put onto a ship that had already been captured from the British and didn't even have a radio. 
I mean, this wasn't much of an investment on the German part. And you have to bear in mind, even if those weapons had landed, these are big, unwieldy weapons. I mean, the, the attempt to land them is dramatising Ryan's daughter, you know. It's very dramatic, but the reality was a lot more mundane. The weapons never reached land because the Royal Navy intercepted the ship and the ship was scuttled down a cork. And throughout the 20th century, yeah, divers went down onto that wreck and picked those rifles off, which is how one of them is in the National Museum. Uh, there's not that many left. The point is, though, the rifles may have, may have made it into the hands of souvenir hunters, but they didn't make it into the hands of the volunteers who were meant to use them. Now, even if they had, these were Russian rifles that used a calibre bullet that the British Army didn't use. So how long would he meant to last with these things? What would he meant to do with them? There was a notion that if you got the rifles to shore, you could capture a train in the stall, put the guns onto it, ferry them up the west coast, and dish them out like confetti to whoever was interested. Now, there was some kind of plan for a rebellion in the west of Ireland. Now, the thing is, though, just because you have a plan doesn't mean you've actually thought the plan out particularly well. But it all became a moot point because without the guns, you couldn't have that rise in the west. Without that rise in the west, you couldn't have even a slim prospect of success for the rebellion that broke out. So by not landing those weapons, by not getting them into their hands, the Easter Rising was doomed to failure. And the capture of the rifles did two things. On the one hand, it doomed the rising to failure. On the other hand, the fact that there happened an attempt to import those rifles, well, it kind of tipped the British off to the fact that something was in the works and, committed, and the British, in the aftermath, decided to crack down on groups of the volunteers and the Irish citizen army. You could say that by not landing those weapons or by the fact that those weapons weren't landed. In many ways, it precipitated the Easter Rising, but it also ensured at the same time that that Rising would be a failure, if indeed it had ever stood a chance of success. Well, that's the point, because there's also the interesting point about the ammunition for it, that it was uh, unusual to come by, so even when they were going to run out, they wouldn't have easily been able to get their hands on any more. No, I mean, they... I mean, it amounts to about, say, 200, 250 bullets per rifle, but these are rifles that fellas would have had no... They wouldn't have had any, any experience in using them. So... How meaningful would this have been? It would have been bigger than what really happened, but would it have been any more successful? Almost certainly not. And, that, and that's the point, I think, is because I think it's interesting around the Rising is there's the whole um, tragic failure around it and that we're kind of the traditional narrative we were come to believe, well, oh, if they all had landed and they had got the guns, how, how it might have been different. But the reality is... Well, look at it from the British point of view. If the British crushed the Easter Rising in Dublin because they thought the Germans were involved, what do you think they would have done to a rebellion in other parts of the country where the Germans actually were involved? The British were in the middle of a war. They couldn't, they would not have tolerated this under any circumstances. John, thanks a million for that. Uh, next week on our History of the Easter Rising in 10 Objects, we'll be discussing a ticket for Colosseum Theatre from the 24th of April 1916, um, which we'll delve into that a bit more in terms of how Dubliners were going on about their, their daily lives, uh, very much unaware of what was going to be happening uh, and what events were, were due to be taking place uh, very shortly uh, around them. So we'll delve into that uh, on next week's show. So don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, follow the show on SoundCloud. You can read, watch and listen to much more about 1916 on independent.ie forward slash 1916. And you can also read about a history of the Easter Rising and 50 Objects written by John Gibney, which is out in bookshops now. Until then, thanks very much.